0: Welcome to the Headache 360 Podcast, a place to
1: listen and learn about the diagnosis and treatment of chronic headache and migraine pain, because information can be the best medicine.
2: Hello, and welcome to uh, our next episode of uh, the Headache 360 Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Adam Lowenstein, and I have a very special um, guest today, (coughs) excuse me, Um, Dr. Pamela Blake is a uh, renowned neurologist um, from Texas, and she has done uh, a tremendous amount of work and research uh, and clinical work with um, both with with headache patients as well as uh, discovering new ways to to take care of patients and uh, is really, really, Um, very active in the field and uh, Dr. Blake I I can't thank you enough for uh, for joining me here today
0: Uh, thank you for having me
2: Um, actually one thing we haven't chatted about we've uh, you spend a lot of time in Georgetown uh, and and Baltimore where are you originally from
0: I'm originally from Scranton Pennsylvania
2: that's right so I um, I'm going to Georgetown on Saturday. Mm-hmm. My mother lives in on Dent Place. You know where that is? Oh,
0: I know very well where that is. Yes. So,
2: yeah. I, yes. I, I was brought up uh, right outside of D.C., and mm-hmm. um, I'm looking forward to some good, uh, <laughs> good food. You know, and Santa Barbara has great American food and mm-hmm. great uh, Mexican food, but uh, I'm going to get some good Chinese and French mm-hmm. food and enjoy the... Um, Multicultural aspects of Georgetown. Yes, it's a wonderful place. Oh, it's that's a, great. It's a great spot. Um, and so, how? Tell me, how did you end up in Houston?
0: I remarried to a petroleum engineer, and this is where they all ah. live. <laughs> they, they can't leave here. So, uh, yes. Yeah, so and my husband is a uh, is a petroleum engineer, and. I had been in Washington for 20 years um, when we uh, were sort of working out how this, how this would work in terms of where we lived and I thought I'm ready for, it. Washington's a wonderful place and I thought I'm ready for something a little bit different and so Texas has been just wonderful and it's been wonderful personally for me and it's been wonderful professionally also.
2: Oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, uh, Washington's sometimes not humid enough I guess so, right?
0: <laughs> it's better for the skin you know to be we, in the humid I, areas. yeah
2: <laughs> I actually took my uh, plastic surgery boards uh, in Houston and mm-hmm. um, we we were in suits and it's very very high pressure It's mm-hmm. several days of, of being grilled and uh, you know questions and answers and stuff mm-hmm. and all you want to do is go outside mm-hmm. and we were at the Doubletree Hotel which was uh, coated you couldn't see outside because of the condensation yes um, and all you want to do is go outside Outside and get some air, but you were going to sweat more if you walked outside <laughs> than if you were getting grilled. And it was uh, <laughs> that, that was that's my memory. Of maybe,
0: maybe they do it on purpose that way so they uh, don't. <laughs> <to go> <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, they
2: the they're they're grueling couple of days, and anything that they could do to make your life worse, they uh, <laughs> they certainly did. Um, but anyway, so let's. Um, I I, I really, I want to touch on this most recent paper that you uh, put out uh, called Emerging Evidence of Occipital Nerve Compression in Unremitting Head and Neck Pain. Um, It's, uh, I have even found this uh, paper really, really important in my practice because uh, having a conversation with local neurologists before mm-hmm. and after this paper has been a totally different experience really? Um, and uh, I would say that uh, before your paper, the local neurologist really did not want to talk uh, about much um, in, in this way. and now they have um, they've asked me to come, Give uh, grand rounds to them, and uh, it, and it it's based on the fact that a well-known neurologist yourself is um is, is clearly receptive to the concept of nerve compression being a, a major cause <laughs> of, of head and neck pain, and I think that's kind of the what it took to to get some of the you know the neuro not non headache neurologists on board for this so mm-hmm. um so it's been great um can can we start by talking a little bit about um the like unre- unremitting head and neck pain is a symptom as opposed to a diagnosis my My conversations with many people on this podcast uh revolve around diagnoses and I think the problems that uh people have getting the, the right diagnosis and how uh, nerve decompression can can help multiple different diagnoses. But um, can you talk a little bit about your experience with um, with the unremitting head and neck pain and kind of where you come from, like where, where you, um, why, I'm trying to, why you're honing in on that as opposed to chronic migraine or cervicogenic headache or or something like that.
0: Sure, well, the, first of all, I, I would like to acknowledge my, my colleague and co-author on this paper, Rami Burstein, um, who has been a wonderful <clears throat> colleague and uh, mentor of sorts in, in this work. And um, it was uh, by pure serendipity, well, No, I take that back. It wasn't complete serendipity. I Mm -hmm. approached Rami at a meeting in 2009 that I attended that um, he was speaking at in Boston. It was a a meeting about pain. And Rami uh, from the platform made the comment that there is something happening in the neck of these patients with chronic headaches. And at that time, I had already um, had some experience, a fair amount of experience with the nerve decompression surgery surgery. Uh, beginning in 2004 at Georgetown when uh, Ivan Duczyk, um the right. plastic surgeon I was working with there, yes, who's published quite a bit in this area as well, approached me one day and said, um, Bamangayaran had shown a poster at a plastic surgery meeting about occipital nerve decompression. And at that time, I thought, <clears throat> why should that help? Um, everybody knows, this was my thinking at the time, yeah. that pain, in the distribution of the upper cervical nerve roots in chronic migraine is due to central sensitization which is a heightened sensitivity of of pain receptors in the nervous system in the brain and it happens as a result of chronic headaches chronic migraines thinking of migraines as being a primarily brain mediated process
1: right,
0: and um so it didn't make sense to me why this should work uh, but um, i had several patients in my practice who had pain that was clearly in the occipital nerve distribution meaning in the back of the neck in the back of the head radiating to the temples or the forehead and everything we were trying for these patients just was not working nothing was helping and so it may have been a little bit more out of a sense of uh, desperation combined with a recognition that the surgery is unlikely to cause problems. It's a, you know, fairly superficial procedure, meaning it's not going into the skull or into the spinal cord. And I thought, well, it can't, I don't think it will hurt and it may help. And it did help. It helped quite a bit. So much so that by the time I left Washington to come to Houston in 2006, we had already performed surgery on about 200 patients. And so by that time, it was a very important part of my practice. So when I went to hear, uh, this meeting in, uh, Boston that was a pain meeting in 2009 and Rami made that comment I approached him after the meeting and said I I think that these occipital nerve uh, compression that the pressure on those nerves has something to do with this neck pain and probably also something to do with their headaches and um, so that initially that started our collaboration and it just so happened in that year 2009 Rami published the first paper that, um, which I do talk about in in, in this most recent article, yep. and his paper talks, was the first to show connections between the extracranial space and nerve cells that, that originate intracranially, trigeminal branches that are innervating the meninges, the membrane around the brain, and then exiting through the skull. So this was a, a, a very important foundational paper that he published because it demonstrates that the, the brain alone is not the only potential source of pain and that forces on the outside of the head may be important. And so in our working together over the years and seeing more patients with um, nerve compression and there's a pretty wide variety of presentations that these patients have in my close collaboration with my my plastic surgery colleague uh, Carlton Perry, we've learned a lot more about how these patients present what um, kinds of treatments they may respond to and when nerve decompression is the right way to go. Um, the It is absolutely correct that there is no one straightforward way that these patients present and they will overlap with a lot of different ICHD, International Classification of Headache Disorders, diagnoses. And the ICHD is a is a very useful tool. It's the classification of headaches. It's it's been um, uh, it's in its third edition right now. It's very valuable in that it gets everyone on the same page, making sure that we are talking at least with regard to symptoms about the same type of problem. So a patient in a study in Denmark and a patient in the study in the United States will be similar in terms of what types of head pain they have. But there are two very important things to remember. Number one is that the ICHD is, is primarily symptom-based. There is very little that speaks to pathophysiology or the etiology of pain in these headache disorders. And number two, it's headache. And so other than the diagnosis of cervicogenic headache, which does talk about neck pain, the involvement or the presence of neck pain in somebody with chronic migraine is, is not mentioned. It's nowhere to be found, and I think that that, it it took me several years to realize that when somebody says I have headache three days a week, but I have a constant daily pain in the upper part of the back of my neck, that, that that's really important, and that's a part of their headache problem
2: it seems like i think a lot of patients at least in my experience they'll talk about their headaches but they won't necessarily talk about their neck unless asked about their neck oh yeah so you know they they just they're thinking that that's and actually i'm one of them i've i've got migraines and i know i mean i have occipital compression and um i you know throughout my residency i spent every moment that i could Pushing my head up against corners of machines and things like that, trying to massage the back, uh, back of my neck. But if you asked me, I would have said I had a headache. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I think that that's you know what you're what you're talking about is not only an issue with diagnosis from a from the physician's standpoint, but also. Uh, a description of of the actual pain from a patient standpoint.
0: Well, just the the last patient I saw today, a patient who is coming in for botulinum toxin injections, um, at at the last visit, we had uh, a long conversation about the fact that based on our conversation from the visit before, that in addition to her frequent headache, she has a constant pain in the left occipital and suboccipital area and the muscle tightness in the back of her neck going down along the top of her back in the middle fibers of the trapezius is worse on the left side and so at that botox injection uh 12 weeks ago when i did the boat when i administered the botox i put a higher dose in all of the muscles on the back on the left side and she found it to be much more effective than the regular preempt protocol and this um uh woman has had this probably going on for years and, and yeah. until the attention is really focused and directed at it and people think about it and pay attention to it, they, they don't pay attention to it because it's just sort of part of the background uh, noise of life. You know, they've had it for so long and they just don't really think about it, um, but it's relevant and it's important. And it, it, when somebody is having chronic neck pain, I think that to categorize this person who may be having headaches only one or two days a week as an episodic migraine patient, um, would be uh, not correct, you know, because there's something more mm. going on. It's not normal to have your neck hurt every day.
2: <laughs> right. That's mm-hmm. uh, uh, that's a very good point. And my, you know, we we we're fortunate. I should say we. Houston is fortunate to have you, but you have people in you know Chicago and and you know North Dakota and whatnot who don't have who who don't have access to. It, it, even any neurologist but certainly headache specialists and I, I i i'm i see a lot of um i don't want to say misdiagnoses but questionable histories and and these people are categorized potentially in a manner that won't allow them to progress to the next level of help mm-hmm. if, if that makes sense
0: well, it does, but, you know, a, a, a person may, be, may meet the international classification, the ICHD diagnostic criteria for chronic migraine, um, and that's fine, but I just, I'm not satisfied with that, you know, to say to somebody, well, you have chronic migraine, and so we will treat you with, um, with medications, and we will simply continue to use medications for the indefinite period of time. You know, and that's why I, I find it more interesting and sort of intellectually satisfying to try to say, well, what, what's causing this? You know, it's not normal yeah. to have, especially if the pain is unilateral, and they have allodynia, tenderness on the back of the head, and that muscle is tight, and for instance, a history of every time I'm, this is another historic fact I talked about with a patient not too long ago, um, every time I'm in a certain class and I have to turn my head to the side to look at the instructor in the front of the class... I get a headache.
1: Yeah. No, that's right. not
0: supposed to happen, right? So there, there's something <laughs> it depends on the class, you know, but okay. <laughs> maybe, um. maybe. Uh, but when the headache is on one side of the head and starts in the back of your neck and comes up the back of your head. That's right. probably not just the professor, um, <laughs> although I, I do find that aspect fascinating as well. What, what role might stress or emotional factors play right. in this as well, knowing that they do have an influence on inflammatory processes? So I, I think it's just really interesting to be able to kind of get into the, into the sort of weeds of what, is, what exactly is causing this pain and what can we do to isolate that and then fix that. I mean that's what we would do anywhere else in the body, right? I mean we think that the head has some sort of mystical thing about it that oh if it's a headache it's sort of something that not to be not to be fully understood. You know, if you go to a doctor because you're having pain in your knee, you're not you're not going to want to walk away with a chronic knee pain diagnosis. You're going to want imaging studies and some way that's to diagnose really good, exactly yeah. what's wrong with my knee and let's fix it. It's a mechanical <clears throat> structural problem. And so I think it's helpful to kind of think about headaches and neck pain that way as well, although imaging right now is not able to tell us too much.
2: So let me ask you um, uh, a little bit about that. So when you, um, do you get imaging on patients preoperatively?
0: No, so not as a matter of routine.
2: Not as a matter of routine. Mm-mm. So because one of the things that I've always done is I always make sure that somebody's gotten some kind of intra intracranial imaging to make sure that there's nothing else going on. Um, but you don't find that to be no critical no.
0: I don't. I mean, the the American Academy of Neurology guideline for, well this guideline is specifically for migraines, but is um, that if they, if there is a uh, if, the, if there is nothing worrisome in the history that would indicate some type of intracranial structural or other process going on. And if the neurological examination is normal, and that's a careful neurological examination, which I do with every new patient, which includes a careful fundoscopic examination, looking at the optic discs, looking for spontaneous venous pulsations, and then a a full neurological examination. If that's all negative, um, and there's no, and and if the history is straightforward for occipital nerve compression, I really would not. Now, I, I don't think there's any role for imaging. Now, certain situations may be a little bit different. If somebody, uh was just treated for cancer for instance or sure, if somebody sure. has terrible cervical spine disease you know from other then, they, then they've had multiple cervical spine surgery something for that yes of course in that situation um we'd want to get some imaging but that's not the typical patient the typical patient is in pretty good health and does not have too much else going on uh and medically to to drive the need for imaging
2: the other thing that i um, i'm trying to remember where i heard this it might have been um what, watching your um your uh, Facebook Live with uh, Dr. Pellett, who's uh, who's a good friend and and an awesome surgeon as well. Um, But I think at some point I heard you say that you don't use um, nerve blocks as diagnostic criteria either. Is that... Is that accurate?
0: That is accurate. I I don't think they're necessary to make the diagnosis of nerve compression. If they are, uh, sometimes they're very helpful, which is great. It can provide a therapeutic benefit for the patient. Sometimes if the history is not completely clear, they may be helpful diagnostically. But I do not require that somebody has had occipital nerve blocks or occipital uh, trigger point injections, which is what I prefer to call them, yeah. with steroid um, to have. I, I don't require that somebody has gone through those injections and had a positive response in order to um, feel confident that the patient has axillary nerve compression. And one of the main reasons for that is that they just don't work with everybody. Um, for instance, today I saw uh, a patient who. Um, gosh, I've probably followed this lady for a few years now, and I missed the diagnosis because I was focused on other aspects of her history that sort of got our attention. Um, but as we as we spoke about it um, over the last few visits, it's become very clear that her, and I, sh- I should say there are other factors sort of cognitively going on that played a role in that and that's mm-hmm. not uncommon by the way. It is um, not uncommon? Right? No. Um, so getting the history correct is really really important and it does not right. always happen at the first visit but her pain is uh, is occipital and suboccipital and it radiates to the front and she's got a lot of occipital allodynia and so I did a steroid, in, uh, an occipital steroid injection uh, two weeks ago and it provoked a lot of pain. Yep, makes it worse. Uh, right. right, it makes it worse, and so, so to me, a provoked headache is is sort of diagnostic.
2: I mean, sure, it, um, sure, that
0: yeah, but that's sometimes a good point. yeah, well, so it's, it doesn't have to be a benefit, and sometimes they just don't really have much of a change of anything. So,
2: well, let me ask you this, and you, you may or may not know this, but again, you know, you, you work with uh, Dr. Perry, who's mm-hmm. a great uh, a, a great uh, migraine surgeon down in Texas, and maybe it's I should be asking him, but I so. I kind of delineate between therapeutic and diagnostic blocks. So I fully agree that you don't necessarily need to have a steroid type of block to um, to to respond. But we do just lidocaine mm-hmm. diagnostic blocks prior to surgery, mm-hmm. and it, our, does Dr. Perry doesn't do that before operating either. Or when you're talking about nerve blocks, or or as you say, um, trigger point injections, um, you're you're exclusively talking about the ones that neurologists will often do using steroids.
0: That's correct. Yes. Okay. No, I don't think he does any blocks like that. And let me um, around the time of surgery. And also, let me just add that, as you know, there's a lot of variability with the anatomy, and I don't know how we could be sure that you're actually getting all of the branches. Of, of the nerves.
2: Well, so. what we do, I mean, what, the way I do it is I, I inject somebody with lidocaine and um, I wait to make sure that they're, they've got their, they're numb in the distribution mm-hmm. of the nerve. Mm-hmm. And it is actually very, very rare, mm-hmm. but on occasion I will inject somebody and they will get numb, but say that their pain is unchanged.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And that person I tend not to operate on. Mm-hmm. Um, most people, 90% of people, uh, I inject and they sit there and their pain goes away, and they will start crying and say, "This is fantastic, and you know, this is wonderful and uh, then that, that's kind of a, and I can also say, well, this is what's going to feel like after surgery because you you know, when, when we operate, oftentimes the nerve shuts down for a couple of days mm-hmm. um, before it comes back. Uh, but I know then that the pain is definitely mediated by those by those nerves. Um, now I use that approach, I should say, in peop-
0: certainly in people with trigeminal branch compression, and when there's uh, facial pain, mm-hmm. and we're looking for that, I do find uh, nerve blocks um, in the trigeminal branches to be very helpful. How how much how much lidocaine or marcaine are you injecting to get complete anesthesia?
2: I use about two and a half to three cc's of Mm -hmm. uh, half percent Mm -hmm. and I will say that most of these patients who come to me honestly have had nerve blocks that have been unsuccessful Mm -hmm. but uh, as you say for the you know when it comes to the anatomy number one it's variable and number two you know I I would say that you are different because I'm, I'm sure that you've you've been involved in these surgeries, but I, I think a lot of, um, you know, when you frequently look at the nerves like I do, mm-hmm. you you kind of know generally how deep to go and, and you know, where, where you're going to find them. If I do an injection and I don't get numbness, I do another injection. And, you know, I, I will sometimes, it will sometimes take two injections for me to to, to get the the numbness I'm looking for, but once I get the numbness, that should, at least logically to me, um, mediate the pain, because I'm shutting down the nerve. That's that's the problem. Mm-hmm. And I, I also do find that some people have a have a residual soreness, kind of like if you have a migraine and you take, uh, you successfully take a triptan. A lot of people have, um, what I kind of allude to, like a sore muscle and. Again, because I have migraines, this happens to me. Uh, So some people still will have that kind of generalized soreness as a headache, but the edge is significantly improved from Mm -hmm. from those injections.
0: Yes. Um, Yeah, well, I think think that that is an interesting approach, and um, I think the main reason why I don't do it is I – I just don't know if I find it necessary to do that. Yeah. I think it really depends on, on the way that the patient is presenting and how, what their history is like. What about if the patient's pain is more in the temples or the forehead?
2: So I, when a patient comes in to see me, I ask them about their pain. Where does it start? Where does it radiate to, et cetera? Um, and I will block the supraorbital, supratrochlear, zygomatica, temporal, auriculotemporal, lesser, greater and you know the greater and the third get blocked together, but I, I that's how I I kind of call it nerve mapping, mm-hmm. and so that's how I map out which which nerves are the problem. And I usually start posteriorly because as as you talk about uh, a lot a lot many times the anterior symptoms um, are are a result of the inflammation of the occipital nerves. But you know a lot of times <clears throat> excuse me we see. You know, bony entrapment of the superorbital nerves, and the uh, when it goes through the a, a tight uh, foramen. And, and this is all technical stuff. And um, if if you're listening and uh, don't understand this, please refer back to um, either m- my website, or uh, I'm sure Dr. Perry has an excellent website about um, the anatomy of these nerves. But um, I, I kind of that's how I use the the injections to map out which nerves of the problem, and I keep on going until the patient is either pain-free or, you know, says, look, I've, I've got like a pain of one or two after mm-hmm. coming in with a pain of nine. And that's how I can say, well, you know, we've got some issues in, on the super or we can do something just under local at the auriculotemporal nerve um, at, or, and, and trace it out that way.
0: So if you, so have you found that if you inject solely in the occipital area if there, if the patient's pain is predominantly frontal, that their frontal pain will diminish when you inject the occipital nerves.
2: Often, but not always. Mm-hmm. So there's there are times that I will I will inject the occipital. It will go. It will get numb, and the patient will still say, "I have pain behind my eyes." Mm-hmm. Um, and then I will do an injection of the superorbital supertrochlear. Mm-hmm. You know, we call superorbital syndrome, mm-hmm. um, and their pain will go away. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. I will tell them, you know, look, it seems like the majority of your problem is from, you know, usually the back. But sometimes sometimes it is the front.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, sometimes I'll inject the, I, I have injected the back and the pain doesn't get any better. Mm-hmm. And then I inject the front and the pain does get better. And what I've operated on those patients, um, you know, I have one patient that the foramen was a centimeter and a half long. Wow. And, um, you know, I had to unroof the entirety of that of the canal there in order to free up that nerve. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I do think that a lot of times the frontal pain is mediated by the posterior, by, by the occipitals, but I think that there's also, uh, you know, sometimes that that superorbital syndrome where, where mm-hmm. you've got compression of the anterior nerves plays mm-hmm. a big role.
0: Yes, yeah, that's that that's interesting. and. I, the, there are, and, and so just to be clear, I mean, it. I don't think a positive response to the to injections is required to make the diagnosis, but there are certainly yeah. times in which it, it is very helpful in a patient for whom uh, the history is just not clear or there's other factors going on. Um, it can be helpful. And I, w- I would also like to just uh, sort of say at, at this point that I think it's it's important to realize that in many patients having nerve compression is a part of their headache problem it may yeah. not be the the entirety of the headache problem and that there may be a what I think of as a more sort of traditionally centrally driven headache process like yeah. quote migraine and quote going on and um, if there are stress or emotional uh, symptoms that may be contributing, that's important as well. And so, I, I think it's I think it's important to make clear to listeners and to other doctors too, particularly that um, sometimes when when a patient goes for surgery, I'll I'll tell the patient. I think this will help forty to fifty percent of your head pain but I don't expect you to be headache free after this there are other things that we need to do as well Now there are some people in the in this in the article I talk about a spectrum of headache um, yeah. pathophysiology that at one end of the spectrum is purely peripheral um, pain and at the other end is purely central pain so the purely peripheral pain might look like a person who has pain only on the back of the head. Um, it may be, for instance, even just unilateral, and it's constantly tender, and it hurts, and they can't put their back of their head on against the sofa or something like that. Right. Um, and they have no frontal pain, they have no nausea, they have no sensitivity to lights and sounds, et cetera. Um, that's a purely peripheral patient. And if they're very tender on the nerve, um, that's pretty straightforward. You know? And then at the other end, the central end is, for instance, the patient who has migraine with aura twice a year. Um, uh, somebody who has a very typical visual aura and then may have some some sensory changes and some language changes. And you know, they're having cortical events going on causing their uh, their then pain that occurs, um, which is frontal. That certainly is a patient for whom, I, nobody would think about doing anything other than a triptan twice a year. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, most patients, of course, are not at those extremes. Most patients are somewhere in between the, the two ends of the spectrum. And depending on where the person is on the spectrum, I think that will indicate or that will sort of uh, suggest and drive how much better they're going to get after taking the pressure off of the nerves. And so if,
2: I, I got to tell you that I have, I could not agree with you more. I've got in where you... Uh, on your paper, I have a couple of areas with stars, like mm-hmm. right next to it, and I've got two stars next to that that concept. Okay, the good. the whole concept of a spectrum mm-hmm. is kind of what I I don't want to say I fight for, but I I just it it, it seems to me that uh, as you've alluded with the knee issue and whatnot, it's just there's there's a spec there's a there's so such complexity of. Different factors, including emotional stress, you know, uh, w- w- those things that you alluded to earlier. Um, that I think the word spectrum is just a fantastic descriptor of of how of how to describe these these pain um, syndromes that you know uh, that can can have multiple modalities and multiple. Um, Multiple causes, and you know, I never tell patients that I'm gonna 100% fix their migraines. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. fix their headaches. When we do that, which it happens a good deal of the time, it's it's fantastic and a bonus. But you know, I'm always shooting for well. You know, we're going to reduce your pain and hopefully make your other medications more effective, make them needed less often, and maybe hopefully get you even off the stronger medications. So you can take an Advil for your headache, just like everybody else, but, um, you know, different people respond in different manners. And I'm very, I'm very conservative, which is actually one of the other questions I have for you is as the role of uh, the surgery in the chronicity of patient care. So I have classically, you know, I'm a surgeon, I love to operate, surgery is not that scary to me, but I realize that it's quite scary to many people. And it, just getting people to understand that this is not brain surgery, it is a peripheral nerve surgery. It, there's not a whole lot of down, you know, downside that, that uh, except for the post-operative discomfort that you can have um, while you're healing. But I have classically thought of this as a last resort. And so, you know, if medications don't work or if you can't tolerate medications, then go to surgery. It sounds to me, in my listening to some of, of your discussions, that you don't feel that way and that surgery should be considered earlier on in, in, the, in the care paradigm.
0: That's right. I, I don't think it's, it should be something of last resort because um, <clears throat> if, if somebody has a history that's very straightforward, Why and 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 we know we know from the data that's been out there if somebody has been on for instance I say four preventive medications they've been on topiramate and amitriptyline and propranolol what's the likelihood that they're going to respond to zonisamide. It, it's not very high now some with the with the new medications of cgrp agents that's a completely different class um that uh does work outside the brain by the way we don't know yet exactly where the cgrp agents work and for all we know they could be working on some of these patients and i think mm-hmm. they do but other than that i don't think it's necessary to subject a patient to trying treatment after treatment after treatment and uh because for, for a few reasons number one is in my experience, in patients with nerve compression, the other treatments just don't work very well. Um, Botox will work, I think, for, for a fair amount of people, about half of people, which is which is very good. Um, in my experience, the CGRP agents may be a little less effective than that, but some people definitely do well. And so that's fine. We can certainly um, use those kinds of treatments. But some people will say, no, I, I don't want to keep getting injections forever i'd rather just make this problem go away and um when i did my fellowship <clears throat> the uh the the person who trained me used to say there's two kinds of people there's lady macbeths and there's hamlets <laughs> and depending on what kind of person you are <laughs> if you're a lady macbeth although that doesn't sound very nice people I, I've, I've had patients come in who have never been on anything for their headaches they've just sort of dealt with them for five years and it's getting worse and now they're starting to miss work and if they've been reading a lot and they recognize that this is what they have and they come to they they come to me and i'll i can kind of you know go through the the history and the physical and then i'll start talking with them about what's going on and we review the anatomy and then we start talking about all the treatment options with preventive medicines and and botox injections and um steroid and they just sometimes if, if it's a Lady Macbeth, the patient will just kind of look at me and say, why should we do all that? Just yeah. fix it. You know, just fix it. And I usually, I'll usually, I don't know, sometimes I just say, yeah, let's fix it. Sometimes I'll feel kind of a little bit of a I, I guess it's an ingrained obligation to say, well, let's at least try <laughs> some. Well, I feel, right? or I mean, something. Like I,
2: <laughs> I don't want to be, I never want to be that, that, uh, that, that knife happy surgeon. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I just, mm-hmm. he just wants to cut you out. I'm not that guy, but I want to help everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've all, you know, I've got patients who call me and they've never, you know, they, they've never seen anybody, mm-hmm. right? I, I've got, I've had a headache for three years, you know, and, and so I want you to look at it and I, and I. I'm asking you this because i may change the way i do business um i don't even see those people i always tell them that they should go see a neurologist talk to their primary care doctor go see a neurologist i'm not the first person for you to see with a headache mm. and i guess that most people go get to dr perry through you mm-hmm. um or with you um but you know if, if somebody were to call me and say i've got you know I've got head and neck pain, and um, and it's you know give me a, a classic pattern, and has not seen anybody else. Um, I, I wonder. Well, should I have that patient come in, give them ner- give, give them my you know diagnostic blocks? If they're block, if they respond to the blocks, go ahead and operate on them. Or should I make them go through the usual hoops of you know nortriptyline, beta blocker, tryptan, all that kind of stuff, and
0: uh. yeah, and and it's complicated also by the fact that, of course, there are there are certain uh, treatment decisions that we don't really have control over. So the the, the treatment that I like the most, if somebody is, um, uh, if we're using something that's not surgery, is Botox injections. Botox definitely definitely yeah. helps these patients, and of course it's very well tolerated, and the muscle relaxant effect is uh, is very very helpful the problem is before somebody can take Botox they have to try at least two different preventive medications and so that means putting somebody on um, an anticonvulsant and an antidepressant and those medications of course can have side effects and um, cognitive effects and things like that and so you kind of go through these steps of well let's first try this okay come back in a month or two okay that's not working now let's try this and it really depends on how 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 Bad the headaches are for the patient, you know. I mean, if somebody is having bad headaches, and triptans work by the way for these headaches when with that with the frontal radiation, triptans yep. definitely work, and I think that's they a really important factor. Yes, yeah. um, it's but if somebody though is using uh 14 tryptan doses a month and is missing work and there's all kinds of problems, then uh, you know, I will say this is I don't think this is right. the right way to go. I, I think and st- that's.
2: Yeah, that, that that to me is an intolerance, or, mm-hmm. or that it's it, of of the medication is not going to work, and mm-hmm. the triptans make people tired, and you know there, there's also side effects that that some people don't like, and I actually also find that you know sometimes uh, Botox works a lot of the time, mm-hmm. but I've had very successful surgeries on patients that Botox did not work on.
0: That's absolutely correct. I would say Botox works about fifty percent of the time, and yeah. it's and I haven't looked at that. Um, scientifically yeah in my own uh in my own practice and that's one of the one of the things I'm going to be doing uh going forward um but it definitely works for some people and it definitely does not work for other people and then for some people it helps partially and then you uh they have surgery, and you may remove a lot of non-contractile tissue, a lot of like connective tissue right. or
2: inflammatory tissue. Right. It's a lot of blood vessels, Yes. Know, if, if the occipital vessels are crossing the nerve, mm-hmm. no amount of Botox is going to help. Right.
0: Botox is not going to help that, but you get the pressure off of the nerves, and then sometimes if they still have some residual headaches then you can go back. And I've had patients go back and do Botox. And I've had patients who did not respond well to Botox prior to surgery, who then after surgery, if there are still headaches, do great with Botox.
1: Um,
0: So it's sort of a, you know, kind of mix of things. And again, you have to think about where somebody is on the spectrum and all these different um, other aspects for treatment. Um, But yeah, I, I, uh, it really is so much dependent on the patient and, and what kinds of symptoms a person's having at the time of presentation and how bad the overall process is. I mean, the the patient um, I mentioned earlier today, or earlier in our conversation, the one I saw today who had pain on the uh, the left side, and this was sort of a recent recognition that she developed, she still has pain most days, but if I'm recalling correctly, but it's very mild. It's about a two out of ten, and her... Uh, her disability score, the Midas score, is very low, and she's very happy with Botox. So, great, yeah. we'll, we'll keep doing Botox and see. Now, I have had patients for whom we've done Botox, and the efficacy eventually subsides.
2: Wears off, right. Mm-hmm.
0: And that may be underlying nerve compression that is getting worse as time is going by. And so, if, if Botox... well, Although we 40, see
2: that as plastic surgeons, we see that just, uh, you know, even in cosmetic uh applications sometimes Botox will just stop working because mm-hmm. the you know the body develops antibodies or or um you know, there's a couple of different pathways that uh, we think that mm-hmm. that that uh, has to do with but um I think yeah that, that again to me would be a um uh, ineffectual medication right i mean, that that would be a reason to have it to have it done I, you know again i I would love to operate on more people. I just I'm conservative by nature, and I always think, well, you know, you should probably jump mm-hmm. through the hoops. But at the end of the day, it is a lot of jumping through hoops. and uh, I think we can help a, a lot of people mm-hmm. with a, with nerve decompression yes. so um, And
0: I do I do sometimes see patients who, who have nerve compression and it's just they're not that it's not that problematic you know well maybe you would include yourself among this group I mean it's sort of mild symptoms and as long as it's not getting progressively worse you can I think it's fine to just kind of follow it and um, learning to avoid the maneuvers that are provocative um, such as extended neck flexion or lifting heavy things or um, doing any kind of, uh, physical activity that puts the neck in such a way that it triggers that the pain to worsen. People can be followed. They don't always need to have surgery. Well,
2: can can I, so this brings up for, for me, I had this for five years solid during my residency. Mm -hmm. And so I just, and honestly, uh, this was, again, I was a general surgery resident and you couldn't show any weakness. And, um, Uh, I I didn't really even know much about migraines at the time, so uh, I've lived with much worse than I currently have, but that was probably largely because of the stressful situation I was in. Mm -hmm. And so you've got a classic uh, aspect of tension headaches, which, again, like for myself, I I see myself falling into so many different diagnoses that, you know, I've got my backyard is torn up right now with uh, landscapers, and I I have a tension headache. I had, had a tension headache yesterday because um, they hit the main and pulled all the electricity out oh. of the house. But that's a whole <laughs> different story. Um, but uh. Uh, you know, but that gives me the same symptoms as I. You know, it, that causes compression, and mm-hmm. that gives me the headache. And then I take a triptan. And my headaches get better. And that's why people ask me why I haven't had surgery. Well, I can take a whiff of Zomig up, you know, as an inhaler, Mm -hmm. and I'm fine in 10 minutes. And I'm used to being tired from my residency again. And so, you know, I can deal with the side effects, and it's not that big a deal to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think a lot of people, some people don't don't respond to the triptans or whatnot. But a lot of people, a lot of people have tension headaches. And i mean do all of those people who hold their tension in their trapezius and neck are all of those <laughs> headaches occipital That's compression such, headaches
0: such an interesting question i i, I don't know i mean you, you, the anatomy as i'm sure you know the anatomic studies have shown that a lot of people have entrapment of the occipital nerves in the muscles of the back of the neck and in the fascial attachments i think like 40 50 60 yeah. percent of cadavers in in that were studied anatomically um, I think Jeff Janice did some of this work right and, and Bauman guyron they found that that a huge a very high percentage have have entrapment and so if there's a lot of tension and, and engagement and contraction of the trapezius muscles in those individuals might that from time to time cause some pain what without it becoming a chronic problem? I don't see. I don't see why not. Uh, yeah, I mean, it,
2: it, anatomically it makes sense, mm-hmm. but you know, it, it's hard to give a blanket statement that if you have tension headaches, they can be fixed with surgery. Mm-hmm. But it's tempting <laughs> to say that because anatomically, that that does make sense.
0: Mm-hmm. I think. I think it's possible, and I think. Um, but of course, somebody with tension headaches by by the ICHD criteria, they are milder headaches. And so often um, those people may not be coming to see the doctor or they may not feel that something like surgery or even medications is warranted uh, for their headaches or necessary. Um, I think once that frontal radiation starts and it begins to look more migraine-like with photophobia and phonophobia, sensitivity to lights and sounds, that's when it sort of turns into chronic migraine. Um, But I just want to say, one of the things that's very interesting talking with, with people with this condition is that they when you can get the history over the span of 10 years or 15 years of what their headaches have been like it it's 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 very illustrative of a gradually progressive process i mean people will often say my headaches when I was 15 years old they just happened once a month and it wasn't really a problem and I would lay down and sometimes maybe have some vomiting and it would get better and go away and then when I was in college they started becoming more frequent and then my first job in my late 20s they were up to you know once or twice a week and then in my 30s now two and three times a week and so and then eventually they just became this constant daily pain. And in, in headache medicine, of course, we would probably refer to that as the, quote, transformation of episodic migraine into chronic migraine, mm-hmm. um, which I talk about in this paper. I mean, maybe, yeah. maybe that whole process has been one of progressively worsening inflammation and uh, further compression on the nerve from the inflammatory yeah. tissue. And uh, at some point, it looked like tension headaches, but then it gradually sort of evolved into more of a migraine type headache.
2: I, this, I, I have not heard that "quote unquote" tension headaches were on were mild. Uh, you know, there's I, I, I see a lot of patients with tension headaches, and they I mean, with diagnosis of tension headaches, and it's ruining their lives. Um, mm. So maybe that by the, you know, by the headache diagnoses, that's not. The right diagnosis mm-hmm. for them, or whatnot, but I think you'd you'd hear from a lot of people who have a who have tension headache diagnoses that uh, it, it's it's not a mild problem. Yeah. So, uh,
0: no, what I, well what I'm what I'm referring to is that in the ICHD criteria. Yeah, right, <clears throat> right. Yeah, it's a. I think the pain is usually mild to moderate, and it does not interfere with function. So if yeah. somebody's having severe headaches that are interfering with function, they're probably not going to meet those criteria. And again, this right. is where you get kind of caught up in the ICHD criteria, and, and, yeah, right. and sometimes it, it's really problematic because it sort of puts blinders on, I think, on, yes, on exactly. you, and you just, you can't kind of think beyond that. You know, you sort of say, well, this can't be tension headache, yeah, it's, it's kind of frustrating. I, mean,
2: I wonder if they're ever going to make a, you know, if there would be a paradigm shift of these diagnoses from uh, all of these different you know, new chronic daily h- headache and you know whatnot to this is an in- intracranial headache. this is an extracranial headache. This is an occipital headache. You know this is a superorbital syndrome headache. It, it, you know if you if we could and I, I'm not even sure that's possible, right? I'm, I, but it would be it that, would be that. helpful from my standpoint to have an anatomically based headache descriptor as opposed to a symptom base because symptoms overlap
0: mm-hmm. absolutely and I, I would i would definitely love to see something like that happen you know the 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 a classification system that is based more on pathophysiology <clears throat> pardon me as opposed to symptoms um yeah, yeah because there is so much overlap <clears throat> pardon me there's overlap and it's just a it, it, it just um feels like something is missing you know and to, to be describing simply the the symptoms of the pain and the frequency etc without without describing without attributing the, the cause of it and uh, we don't we don't do this anywhere else in the body you know i mean cardiologists don't have a complex classification of of chest pain yeah right they they go right to the arteries you know where's where is this problem coming from and what can i do to, to fix it so um, I, I would love to see headache medicine become a little bit more like that. You know, headaches are one of the leading causes of disability globally, and um, I, I, I think I think it would be helpful to introduce more pathophysiology-based work in terms of uh, understanding the causes of headaches and also treatment-related.
2: Well, I, I I agree with you fully, and I really thank you for. All of your work uh, in, in promoting and, and kind of getting everybody to head in that direction. I, I, I can't tell you how jealous I am of dr. Perry <laughs> and I have I've had conversations with Dr. Pellet as well where he tells he this guy I wish that uh, I, I wish Pamela Blake had a twin sister. <laughs> and I wish there were three of you. So, um, wow. so thank you, thank <laughs> you so much for for all that you do and and for taking uh, the time to to talk. And I, I I really really enjoy talking to you, and I would love to you know do do this more. As you know, I, this is something that's I think we could both talk. Talk about for days. Well, um, well thank
0: you. And I and I do I, I do hope I, I I think that as um as more of this literature is published, I think you'll find that more of the headache medicine community becomes more aware of this option for treatment and um, starts to gain more of an understanding of how these patients present and what to do for them because it's 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 so rewarding to be able to, to help people that um, I can't see why people wouldn't want to be involved in that. So
2: yeah, that's how I like to feel yeah. too. But uh, there, there, there—it's a very—it's almost as complex as headaches yes. <laughs> uh, when you get into the politics of of all of that. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, as I often say, it's the 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 most gratifying part of my practice mm-hmm. uh, is is my migraine mm-hmm. practice, and you know, you're really changing lives, and uh, I, I, uh, I I think it's a great thing, and I, I again, I really appreciate your. Uh, well, thank
0: you. And I'm so glad you have this podcast. It's a wonderful way to, to reach out to people and, and hopefully help some people uh, learn some things that can help themselves or help other people that they know who are suffering. So thank you very much yeah, for having well,
2: me. Um, my pleasure. And, you know, just for... Uh, Yes, you and uh, Dr. Perry have uh, your your website is chronicdailyheadache.com um, Is that
0: yes? Well, our our new practice here in Houston is the Headache Center of River Oaks, and our we this is a brand new practice that we just formed um, not even two months ago, and we're still uh, in the in the, the growing phase right now. And so our, our website is is uh, pretty fundamental right now with just some contact information, but um, there is contact information there, and it has been really nice working working together with him. I think it's helpful for our patients who are, who are coming in, and certainly for the patients who, who do go through the surgery process and post-operative physical therapy. And we will be bringing in next year a psychologist who will be doing the very important work of, of screening for emotional factors that may contribute to pain, and then therapeutic uh, treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy or supportive psychotherapy for people um, who need that as an important part of their headache care
2: and I, I'm I'm trying to do the same thing here in Santa Barbara, and mm-hmm. uh, it's it, that that team approach that you know from a plastic surgery standpoint, uh, we learned when we take care of cleft lip and palate patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, it, it really seems so appropriate for the headache world, and I commend you guys for for getting it done. Uh, you unfortunately, or fortunately for you guys, but unfortunately for the rest of us, uh, you're kind of the keystone uh, to that kind of, uh, paradigm and finding, uh, kind of forward thinking, uh, neurologists to, uh, to work in, in, uh, in that kind of forum is, ha- has proven difficult. So if you do walk into a cloning machine or <laughs> you hear somebody who's, uh, interested, um, I, I, I'm, I'm working behind the scenes to, 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 toward bringing somebody like that to, to Santa Barbara, but I'm certainly uh, uh, happy to, to hear of some new prospects. Mm-hmm. If uh, anybody wants to try and uh, do those kind of things, as is Dr. Pellet in San Francisco, I think, uh, you know, we've talked about that a lot right. uh, as well. So right. um, kudos to, to all of you and uh, thanks for that contact information. I encourage patients to uh, read and uh, research into everything that Dr. Uh, Dr. Blake does because it, it's really um, it's it's really really helpful. So thanks again for your time. All
0: right, thank you very much.
2: Hey everybody, this is Dr. Lowenstein once again, and I have two last things to ask of you. Firstly, the thing you can do for fellow headache sufferers is to please remember to subscribe and rate our podcast. The more ratings and subscriptions that we get, the more visibility that we'll get, and the more listeners will be able to find us. And the more help and information we'll be able to provide the huge population of people who suffer from headache pain secondly please remember that the treatment of headaches of all types is very individualized the purpose of this podcast is not to give medical advice so please use the information here on this podcast and elsewhere that you hear on the internet to broaden your knowledge but consult with your physician before acting on any information that you hear on podcasts or see on youtube or read anywhere on the internet I, as a physician, don't necessarily endorse the opinions or practices of my guests, and if you have particular questions that you'd like to consult with me directly about, please call our Headache Surgery Center. Our phone number is 805-969-9004, or you can email us at info at headachesurgery.com, and my staff will set up a consultation, and we can discuss your specific case over the phone or in person. Our website is filled with information as well, and that is headachesurgery.com. Thanks and best wishes from all of us here at the Headache 360 podcast.